Welcome to the Community of Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and then grow together into fully devoted followers of Him. So wherever you are, we hope you find this message helpful, practical, and applicable to your life. God bless. All right, well, good morning, Community of Hope. Good morning, good morning. Um, Man, can we thank the band for leading us in worship? Wow, wow. My wife literally leaned over to me after the first service and whispered in my ear moments before I was about to get up and stage and preach, and she said, if you can't preach after that, you need to find a new job. Okay. All right. So again, it's great to be here with everybody today. Great to be with everybody online. We're glad you've joined us for worship here today too. If you're new, my name's Trevor. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's a privilege to be here today with you. It's also a privilege as a pastor. Um, if you're just now tuning in at the top of the service, we got to have a baptism at the beginning with little Tinsley. And I always love, it's kind of like a badge of honor as a preacher when you preach with a wet sleeve for a baptism. Yeah, it's a good day in church. It's a good day in church. Well, listen, we've had, uh, before we jump into the message, we had a great and busy week at our church this past week. Man, there's just so many different phenomenal things happening in our church. None of this is to, you know, have anybody sign up for anything. I just wanted to share and celebrate some really cool things. Many of you know that we had um, Dr. Gary, um, not some, Chapman, I almost said smiling, like that's a different author. Gary Chapman, who is the author of the Five Love Languages, came to our church on Tuesday night. Y'all, 600 people showed up to that thing. Here's a picture of the event. It was incredible. Great teaching on the Five Love Languages. Amazing teaching on the love languages of apology. Oh my gosh. Uh, great teaching on forgiveness. Amazing stuff. Super, super helpful to invest in people's marriages and relationships with those who are married or want to be married one day. Oh my gosh. It was such a wonderful night. I was so proud of our church um, and just proud of how we're investing in marriage. We believe in marriage. And then totally different event, totally different focus. On Thursday night, we had what we called our Confronting Human Trafficking Conference. Now, listen, I can't show you a picture from that event. You want to know why? Because we weren't allowed to take pictures. Because there were survivors of human trafficking on the stage and survivors of human trafficking in the audience. And let me tell you, I... To go from being so proud of our church to wanting to invest and learn from some of the best of the best about marriages to just 48 hours later, our church locking arms with law enforcement and amazing local agencies saying we're all hands in on together of confronting this injustice in our land, not in Palm Beach County and not on our watch in Jesus' name. For our church to do both of those things, come on, come on. Man, I love it. Our church, we're about marriages. We're about family. We're about improving your life. And we're about confronting injustice. You can do both these things. Guys, I I wasn't in charge of either of these things. So this is not like a self-high five and a pat myself on the back. I cannot believe I get to be one of the pastors of a church like this. Community of Hope, you're awesome. You are awesome. It's a privilege to get to be here. Yeah, so it was a great week. It was a great week here at church at Community of Hope. Proud to be a part of everything that's going on here. Now, we're gonna, now, we're going to jump into our message. So if you haven't grabbed uh, your, uh, your CUH app or your notes, your Bible, or however you read your Bible, go ahead and open that stuff up now. Grab that stuff now. We're diving on it. As Haley mentioned earlier in the service today, we're in the series called How Life Works. Everyone say that with me. How Life Works. And we're going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We're going through verse by verse through the whole thing from start 
to finish. And really what we're saying is the point of this whole series and what we believe that the point of Jesus' whole message in the Sermon on the Mount is he's teaching everybody and challenging everybody, you guys and all the preachers included, to subordinate every single area of our life to subordinate every other identity, every other ideology, every single area of our life goes underneath our identity as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and goes underneath our identity as a follower of Jesus. And he teaches us that when we learn to do that and to practice his ways, this is how life works best. So if you're here, you're streaming with us online, or maybe you're here uh, from our broadcast location in Loxahatchee, let me just tell you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I believe with all that I am, that following Jesus makes every single person's life better. With all I am. I didn't say easier, but better. I'll die for that. I'll die for it. And, um, which is a weird thing. You'll make your life better and I'll die for it. I need to simmer down now. Okay. <laughs> but it'll make your life better. You should want to do this. So part of my goal in this is to everybody who's self-identified as a follower of Jesus, go, this is how he says life works best. So we're going to align our lives to this. And for everybody here, maybe you've been burnt by church. Maybe you're new to faith. Maybe it's first time to church in a long time. My goal is to help entice you to want to follow Jesus and go, I, I think I want in. I want in on the kingdom. That's my goal here today. So our theme verse is um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, like Haley referenced it. Let's read it out loud all together. So if you're streaming with us online, I don't care if you're on your couch or in the drive-thru at Dunkin' Donuts. Read this with me. Don't hit the person in front of you. Right, great. Verse 24, let's read it all together. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Great. So this past week was Valentine's Day, and I hope everyone had a wonderful and delightful Valentine's Day. Um, in my house, many of you know that um, we just had a baby in October. We have a four-month-old at home, and by the way, he's not only four months old, he's also our fourth kid. So Valentine's Day is a little bit different in this stage of life right now. It's a little bit harder to get out. And what do you know, finding babysitters for four kids can be a little bit of a challenge. And so occasionally what we'll do, we learn to do this in the pandemic in the Johnston house is we have fancy dinner night. Now, fancy dinner usually entails picking up a $5 pizza from Little Caesars, okay? <laughs> but the rules for fancy dinner in our house for special occasions is you have to wear your fanciest clothes and you have to have an alter ego and an accent for the entire dinner, okay? <laughs> now... My parents were in town this week for Valentine's Day, so we did fancy dinner together. So here's a picture of the Johnston men for fancy dinner for Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah, hey. I can't tell if you're laughing at our silly faces or at my dad's hideous, I mean awesome jacket that he's wearing, right? So there, there's the Johnston men. And so here's a picture of the Johnston women for fancy dinner who look, woo. See, you guys laughed ironically at us, but you're genuinely applauding them. That hurts my feelings. So, you know, for fancy dinner, it's a lot of fun. Uh, my alter ego was, I'm, I was Tim Brady, the long-lost brother to Tom Brady. <laughs> Can't you see the family resemblance, right? Apparently, I'm the more handsome brother. So, 
No, so it was just a lot of fun. We had sparkling grape juice in wine glasses. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was, it was just a great time. That's how our Valentine's Day went. Now, I know not for everybody, Valentine's Day is a great holiday. For some people, it's a hard day for various reasons or whatnot. But if you had a not great Valentine's Day, I guarantee you, you probably did not have a worse Valentine's Day than a guy I read about in the news this week. I read about a famous athlete this week. Now, I'm not going to say his name. I'm not going to say what sport he plays, what league he plays in, or what team he plays for. I'm not here to dunk on anybody or shame anybody publicly. Come to church where we just judge everybody. We're not doing that. Okay, this is all illustrative. So, but there was a famous athlete this week who got busted on Valentine's Day for dating two women. (laughs) So here's what happened. This famous athlete did it to himself. This famous athlete um, flew two women to the same city. And then he put them up at the same hotel on the same day in different rooms unbeknownst to each other. Thought he could pull it off. It sounds like a bad romantic comedy, right? It sounds like something Joey would do from Friends, doesn't it? It totally does. Joey would totally do this. And of course, it blew up in his face. Like, have you never watched TV ever? Come on, man. This doesn't work. Anyway, the reason it blew up in his face and they found out about each other is because both of these poor women posted on Instagram about their romantic day getaway with said athlete at said hotel in said city. Oh, heck no. (laughs) Right? Yeah, he had a bad Valentine's Day. Come on, man. It's not good. Not good, right? See, the problem with this poor guy, again, I'm not saying names. We're not here to publicly judge or shame anybody. This poor guy assumed that he could be in love with two people at the same time. Can you be in love with two people at the same time? No. Somebody said, sure, we're going to get to that. (laughs) Um, No, here's here's what I mean by that. The human heart the way God designed it was to have a singularity of devotion to it. Your heart is designed to have devotion going one way, not multiple ways. Now, I'm not talking about loving multiple children or having lots of friends. I'm not meaning it in that sense, but at the core of your heart's desire, you are designed to have a singularity of devotion. You can't be in love with two people at the same time. You can't. And that's Jesus' point for our passage for today. He's confronting us that there are two things in life that both fight for our love and devotion, but you can't love them equally, and you have to choose. So let's jump into our passage where we left off from last week, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, verse 19. Jesus says here, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not uh, destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole, your, if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then the light within you is darkness. How great is that darkness? No one 
can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear, is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? And what shall we drink? And what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus, open our hearts. And we pray the prayer of the psalmist. Open our eyes to see wonderful things life-giving things, grace-filled things, mercy-filled things, things filled with the power of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Okay, let's talk about this passage for just a moment. We're going to focus in and hone in on verses 19 through 24. Um, because that really think is the thrust of this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Plus, just back in November, when we did our series on deep peace, which a lot of you commented on, it was really helpful, especially if you struggle with anxiety and worry. Um, we focused a lot on this passage then, and we covered a lot of that material then. Plus, like I said, the real thrust of this theologically is 19 through 24. And what Jesus is doing here in verses 19 through 24, is he's using the tool of contrast, which is where you show the differences between two things to make a point. And Jesus contrasts three things. He contrasts two treasures. He con- I should do it like this. Two treasures. He contrasts two eyes. And he contrasts two masters. Let's talk about that. Two treasures, right? Jesus contrasts two treasures and where you should keep your treasure. Now you might be asking yourself, treasure? That sounds a little bit funny. I don't know about you. Do you have treasure? I don't. I don't have treasure. Do you have treasure? It sounds a little bit like Scrooge McDuck. Where are all my millennials and everybody else who grew up watching DuckTales, right? It sounds like Scrooge McDuck. I don't have treasure. Who has treasure? Now I'm fully aware that we are in Loxahatchee. This is where we're broadcasting from. So there's a high likelihood that somebody here or somebody streaming online is like, that's right, Pastor Trevor. I don't trust the banks. I live off the grid. In fact, I've heavily invested in gold and buried it in various places across Loxahatchee. Or have I, right? Now, there might be some people here like that. But the point is, some people are pointing and laughing at each other. I see you. I see you. The point of this isn't treasure. The point of this, Jesus is talking about resources. He's talking about money. He's talking about material possessions. Um, he's talking about finances. He's talking about that. He says treasure. So don't get hung up on that word. He's talking about 
your resources, and things of that nature. Now, most people literally in, the ancient, uh, in ancient Israel literally held their resources and hid the resources in their home. So I get, there were banks back then, but it's not like how everybody has a bank account now. Um, they would literally hide it in their walls. They would literally bury it in the floor. And so it was a real threat for your resources to get corrupted by things like moths, by things like pests, like rodents or insects. And of course, where thieves could break in and steal. I mean, this is almost like the equivalent of grandma's pearls in the flower jar, Right? Except everything is in the flower jar. It's that type of thing. Now, you might be hearing this and go, well, I'm not worried about moths or rodents or rust necessarily. You might not be worried about that, but you are worried about inflation. And you are worried about economic policies. And you are worried about market fluctuations. And you are worried about corrupt boards, corrupt politicians, and Ponzi schemes. This passage totally applies still today. So Jesus's point is that earthly treasure, it's temporary, it's not secure, and it's vulnerable. So why would you give what's most valuable to you to things on earth? And let's also just remember here too, right? Like when you die, your resources don't go with you. Last time I checked, the richest dude in the graveyard is still dead. That's his point. Now, just to be clear, you might accidentally miss Jesus's point in all of this. Is Jesus saying it's wrong to have a bank account? Is Jesus saying it's wrong to have a savings account? Is Jesus saying it's wrong to save for retirement or to plan for legacy giving for your children or inheritance for your grandchildren? Is he saying it's wrong for institutions to have endowments? Is Jesus saying these things No, that's not his point. You have to let the Bible interpret the Bible. If you read the rest of the Bible, the Bible encourages wise financial practices like saving, like saving for retirement, like saving for rainy days, like being able to build um, your financial picture so you could give an inheritance to your children, your grandchildren. The Bible talks about these things and encourages things and applauds these things. So Jesus isn't saying no to that entirely. You're missing the point. What's his point? It's one word. Do not build for yourself treasures on earth. Do not build for yourself treasures on earth. See, this is what he's doing. We talked about this two weeks ago for Matthew chapter 6. He's getting at the heart of the issue. This is a heart issue when you start for yourself Wealth and riches. In fact, this is what he says here around two treasuries. He said, for your treasure is there, your what is? Your heart is also. So just to be clear, we're talking about all this stuff today. Jesus doesn't, how do I say it? God does not need your money. Let's not insult God. Like God needs more pieces of paper with George Washington's face on it. Come on now, right? He invented the tree that it was printed on. God doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. And because money has a weird way of connecting to people's hearts, he wants to talk about your money. Because it's not about money. It's about this. See what I mean? Okay. So there's two treasures. So Jesus moves on. He says now he contrasts two eyes two eyes. Now, this seems super confusing on the surface level. There's healthy eyes and unhealthy eyes. 
healthy eyes and unhealthy eyes. Jesus, are you talking about glaucoma? Jesus, are you talking about astigmatism? Jesus, are, are, is there some sort of eye condition that we're talking about here necessarily? Now, I have a lot of compassion for this. I've literally, I wear contacts and I've literally worn glasses as long as I can remember. I was the kid who went to school with an eye patch on to fix my astigmatism, right? So I've like, well, is he talking about an eye condition? Is this what he's talking about? That's not what Jesus is talking about. In his day, when he was talking about healthy eyes and unhealthy eyes, everyone who heard him would have understood exactly what he was saying. It was an ancient Israelite idiom. For a healthy eye and an unhealthy eye was their way of describing somebody who was generous and somebody who was stingy. You don't know what I mean by generous and stingy, right? I mean, we could talk like on moral levels, like are you generous or stingy with the poor? But even like at a restaurant, like if you go to some place for brunch or for lunch after church today and a waiter comes to you and they give you good service, the person with a healthy eye leaves a good tip because they know you just came from church. You leave a good tip. And a person with an unhealthy eye stiffs them or leaves them two quarters and a stick of gum for a tip. Don't do that. Do you all know that? The people know when we go to lunch after church, they're watching to see if Christians tip or not. Did you know that? Have a healthy eye, okay? Okay. Anyway, so it's being generous or being stingy. But then Jesus talks about here, he says, yeah, right. Depending on if you're generous or if you're stingy is, um, is really determines if you're full of spiritual light or spiritual darkness. Wow. I don't know about you. I don't want to be filled with great, deep darkness. Like, I know we might not even all be on the same page about this Jesus guy and all this stuff, but I don't think I know anybody other than, like, maybe Marilyn Manson who'd be who say, yes, I'd want to be filled with darkness. Nobody wants that. Jesus is incentivizing people. He's not coming with a hard and fast rule. He's saying, hey, don't put your treasure in places where it's insecure and vulnerable. He's drawing them. Hey, do you want to be filled with spiritual light? Yes. Then learn to be generous. He's pulling people towards this truth of how life works best. And he's pulling them in for this final contrast. There's two masters. There's two masters. And this too can be confusing. Verse, or chapter 6, verse 24. Let's look at this one more time. This is what I think is the thrust for the entire passage and for everything we're going to be talking about today. Let's read it one more time. He says, no one could serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. See, when I first read this, in my study, I know this is the most important verse for what we're talking about today. But I had a really hard time connecting with it emotionally. I couldn't wrap myself around it. Like, why? I mean, I get what he's saying, but how come I don't feel what he's saying? What's wrong here? And it's because I realize some of Jesus' metaphor meant perfect sense for everybody in that day. But you have to translate a little bit for us. So if you think about the literal word he used, master, man, that doesn't work in an American context. In his day, ancient Israelite forms of indentured servitude and even ancient Israelite forms of slavery were dramatically different than the scourge of slavery America remembers. They were completely different institutions run completely differently. And so that doesn't work. So, okay, so that, that's the wrong metaphor. Well, maybe it's the metaphor of maybe with like a boss. Like you, you can't serve two bosses. You love one, hate the other. But then I started to think, I know lots of people who have multiple jobs and they don't like any of their bosses. 
So I'm like, okay, so that doesn't work either. That's not the heart connection that Jesus wants. And what connected for me, and this isn't what he's saying, but this is what he's trying to say, it's like love. And in fact, he references love and devotion and service. It's almost like a romantic relationship. That's not what he's talking about, but it's close. You can't be in love with two people at the same time. You can try. You can try. But does it work? No. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can't love two things equally. The human heart was designed to have singularity of devotion attached to it. You can't love these two things equally. And he all lands it with you can't love God and you can't love money. You have to pick. Now remember what the Bible says. True or false, does the Bible say money is the root of all evil? False. The Bible does not say that. The Bible says this. 1 Timothy 6.10 Money is not the root of all evil. For the love of money. You see that? Money is aspiritual. It's not good or bad. It's a tool. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so what Jesus is getting at here is who you're going to love. Are you going to love God or are you going to love money? Who's going to be your master, God or money? God is a wonderful master. Money is a great tool, but a terrible master. And when you choose to love money, money doesn't set you free. Money enslaves you and gets a grip on your heart, and it won't let go. This is really important for us as followers of Jesus because we have to learn how to break money's grip off of our hearts which is a hard thing to do and can be a complicated thing to do. And what Jesus is getting at here in this passage and what he's getting at throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount and in all of his teachings and all of the Gospels and what the testimony of all of Scripture is getting at is there is only one way to fall out of love with money. There's only one way to break up with money as your master. There's only one way to renounce money as your master. It's a wonderful tool, but if you fall in love with it, it will consume everything in your life. It will eat you alive. The only way to break up with money is to give it away. That's it. And I always feel insecure talking about it at church because now that I'm literally a televangelist, people are thinking I'm just out to get people's money. You know? That was meant to be a joke. It's okay. It was supposed to be funny. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm not after your money. Can I say that? I'm not. And neither is Jesus. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your money. He's after your heart. And so he talks about your money. If the only way to break your agreement with money as your master is to learn how to practice generosity and give it away, you got to learn how to grow into that. It's not something that can happen overnight. Pastor Dale has these things called, he says, the five levels of generosity and the five levels of giving, where most people don't start off feeling, I'm a rock star, generous person, just like Jesus said with the flip of a switch. It takes time to 
get money's grip off of your heart and to get free from it. And so here's how you start. At the very base level, people give out of self-interest. This is when they first begin to give. So like, for instance, if people were to give here, it's not the only place where you can give. My wife and I give sacrificially here first to community. But then we give to a bunch of organizations on top of that that, um, that care for the poor and the marginalized in the world. And so it's not the only place we can give, but for the sake of context and story, let's talk about this. People first give out of self-interest. And this is where I give so I can get. Like some people, this is where the false teaching of what's called prosperity gospel is. Like if you give money, God will give you money back and make you rich. That's the, that type of thinking is like the lowest level version of generosity, okay? And when people think they give to get. And even some people, like if they come here at church, like this offers, they give great iced coffee and I like the service and the music. The bearded guy's weird and I don't like him. But, you know, the children's ministry is great for my kids. I don't want it to go away, so I'm going to give. So I'm going to give. So they give out of self-interest. They're giving because they're getting something. Okay, that's a great start. Not here to judge that, but that's where most people start out. But then the next level up is gratitude. And this is where the Bible begins to teach about giving. That really, because God gave everything to me, I'm like, what else more could God give? He gave his one and only son. Because God gave everything to me, I'm going to give him my life, I'm going to give him my heart, I'm going to subordinate every part of my life under his leadership, and eventually I'm going to give him some of my resources. Martin Luther, the great reformer, used to joke that the last part of a person that would become converted was their wallet. It's almost like when we're doing baptisms here, the image would be like somebody going, I say yes to Jesus, I'll follow him all the days of my life. And then they get dunked, but they hold their wallet out of the water, Right? It's usually for the people, the last part when they learn to follow Jesus, it's the last thing to come on board because sometimes they have weird feelings about money. They have weird feelings about people with microphones when they're talking about money. And I get all that and compassion towards all of that. But you start moving towards gratitude of this is my way to say thank you to God. And so people give that way. Now, what's up from, genero- or from gratitude and generosity is obedience. And this is where the biblical teaching really begins on giving. So we talked about the five love languages on Tuesday, which was a fantastic night. Now, the five love languages are words of affirmation. These are the five ways people give and receive love in relationships. Words of affirmation, time, touch, gifts, and acts of service, right? And so my wife and I, we took a picture of the photo spot where you can hold up which one's your love language. Oh, it's so cute. So here's the picture from Tuesday night. And so me, I'm holding up the best love language, which is words of affirmation. (laughs) Clearly, everyone should just be more like me, right? That's how marriage works. Um, Leah's uh, love language is acts of service. Now, it wasn't always this way until we had kids. And so before I would tell her I loved her, I would hug her, you know, whatever. And then after we had kids, if I want to tell my wife I love her, I better wash some dishes and vacuum some floors without being asked to do it. (laughs) And all the ladies said... Yeah, right. I'm still a husband in training. I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm learning. So mine is words. Lee is a service. And Asa, you can see there, he was with us. His love language is milk. So, you know. (laughs) Do you want to know what God's love language is? God's love language is obedience. He says in scriptures that if you love me, you'll obey me. Now, that's not a manipulative, coercive thing. 
That's going, if you love me, that means you'll trust me and believe what I'm saying and that you'll believe that I have your best interests at heart. If you love me, do what I say because I'm trying my best to lead you into eternal life. And so when we learn to grow in our gratitude, to slowly peel money off of our heart, we learn to do it because God says something just to be obedient. Oh, money really loses its grip on your heart when you begin to do that. This is where people learn to get regular, where people get scheduled, where people, instead of just picking a dollar amount, they start picking a percentage of their income to give, and then they try to grow that year after year. That's what obedience-driven giving looks like. And, oh, man, money really starts to lose its grip when you get to that level of generosity. But that's not where it ends. There's a level up from just obeying God. The next level is called spiritual vision. And this is when you begin to see things the way God sees things. You begin to see people the way God sees people, and your heart starts to care for the things that God cares about. And when you quit seeing dollar signs, and instead you start seeing souls. Here's what I mean by that. Here's a picture from the great movie Schindler's List. It won Best Picture in 1993. It's directed by Steven Spielberg. There's Liam Neeson. Um, before he was in every single movie, killing every single person that moves. <laughs> in this movie, Liam Neeson is trying to save people's lives. And it's um, a biopic of um, Oscar Schindler, who was a Nazi, um, who was a member of the Nazi party, and he was an industrialist in Europe. Um, but he spent his whole life trying to save Jewish men and women. In fact, he's the... I think he's the only Nazi who has ended up being buried on Mount Zion in Jerusalem by the Jewish community to honor him and how he saved thousands of lives. In fact, he spent his entire fortune to save these people and his entire industrial world to save people's lives. And so this movie is an unbelievable movie about it all. And in this scene, the final scene, there's 1,100 people around whose lives that he has saved from sure death in gas chambers. And he's trying to make his escape, and they've all come to say thank you to him and to honor him for his sacrifice. Because of him, generations were going to live. And as they're saying thank you to him, he begins to have a breakdown moment. He begins to weep because he begins to go, I could have done more. I could have done more. And like, you couldn't have done any more. Look at all that you've done. What do you mean? And he goes to his car, his car. And he touches his car and goes, this is 10 people. I could have gotten 10 more people for this car. And he takes his pin off of his jacket, is what the picture is. He said, this is made out of gold. This could have been two people, definitely one person. I could have got one person with this. And he just begins to have this breakdown moment where he's even thinking about, how could I have saved more lives? Because he quit seeing money. He quit seeing possessions. He quit seeing stuff. He quit seeing finances. And he started seeing that as souls. His vision changed. And he's honored forever because of it. When people learn to not only give because it's obedient to God, but to give because we see souls instead of dollar signs, oh man, money really loses its grip off of your heart. And then there's even one higher level which go figure, it's love. Where you're not only giving because you love the people that Jesus loves, 
but you're giving because you love him. And Lord, 10% isn't yours. It's all yours. And I put it all on the table and I'll give whatever you want because it's all yours and I love you. And I want you to receive the reward of your suffering, human hearts and lives. It's my sacrifice of love to you. And when you do that, money has no grip on you anymore. You're dead to it. You're dead to it. Now here's what I know as a pastor. Here's what I know as a pastor. There's people in here who hear me say these things and they're going to want to give. I want to give, but I can't. And I can't because of debt. Because of credit card debt, because I'm house poor, because of student loans, because of auto loans. I literally am ensnared by my financial choices and I can't do anything to grow my generosity. It's easy to feel trapped and hopeless and even depressed when you get in a real bad spot with money. Anybody ever been in a bad spot with money before? And some of you are probably in a bad spot right now. I understand how that feels. Let me tell you a story. And the band's gonna come on out while I'm telling this story. Uh, when I first moved here in 2014, now as the band's getting up there, look right here, okay? <laughs> Look right here. I know they're cool. Stay with me. When I moved here in 2014, Lee and I were fresh out of seminary. We were broke, dead broke. We had like not $2 to rub up against each other. And then I started to get a paycheck every two weeks. Like, oh my gosh, look at this money. And it comes every two weeks? We're rich, you know? And we weren't rich. Uh, We weren't rich at all. But we were just learning. So we rented a house. Wow. And we bought a used car for Leah. And we're so excited. And then we started to do our budget. When we did our budget, somehow we realized we were in the red by hundreds of dollars every single month. And we didn't know how we got there from go. We were in a bad financial place. It felt desperate and hopeless. At the same time, Pastor Dale took me to lunch at the Chick-fil-A in Okeechobee by the Turnpike. We're eating Jesus Chicken, having a meeting about church. <laughs> and totally separate from that situation, said to me, Trevor, now that you're new here at the team at Community Hope, as your boss, I'm demanding that within one calendar year, as a part of your job, you take Financial Peace University, and you'll do it because I'm your boss, and I said so. And I said, yes, sir. If you don't know what Financial Peace University is, it's a course that teaches you how to use money God's way. It's a fantastic course. And so Lee and I took it that year, and it changed our lives. And we thought we, could, we, thought we knew how to use money well, and we found out we were really bad at money. And we had to make some choices. Are we going to use money God's way and be mastered by money, or do we want Jesus as our master? And so we started to choose Jesus as our master. And we had to make some hard choices. We had to move out of the condo, or excuse me, we had to move out of the house we were renting, and we downsized into a small condo, and it broke my heart to put my wife and my little kid in a condo instead of a house. But we're learning to use money God's way. And it broke my heart to not take vacations that many of our friends were taking to get to do fun things like many of our friends were doing. We started to live under our means, and we started to pay off our debts, and we started one by one, got out of medical debt and credit card debt and vehicle debt, and we just worked the plan. And bit by bit, God took us out of despair and brought us step by step into hope. And today, we're debt-free. I own my own home. 
And let me tell you, in all of this, it's not because of my own strength and goodness. As you start walking with God in, in his ways, God starts showing up in your money. God starts providing in miraculous ways. And God starts blessing when you start walking his way and doing life how he designed it to work. God shows up. I'm debt-free. I live in a house that um, I own. I, um, we're living under our means. And then the coolest thing of all, is that our first year of marriage, God challenged us to give a sacrificial gift that stretched our faith, and oh my gosh, it was the biggest thing we had ever given before. We did it, and God blessed that decision. And now, 10 years later, I give more every single month than that one huge one-time gift we gave in the first year of our marriage. And let me tell you, it feels awesome. It feels awesome to give like this. There's hope if you're trapped. There's hope if you're hurting around money. And Jesus will offer to you the most spiritual thing some of you could do today is to sign up for something like Financial Peace University. It's on our group's page online. It's the most spiritual thing you could do. So here's what we're going to do. The band's going to sing. We're going to respond with our remaining time that we have today. We're going to have prayer teams up here at the front to pray with you, especially if you're in a bad financial spot. We're just going to pray and sing to this Jesus who we want to love and we want to lose all of our loves for everything else and just give our devotion to him. Lord Jesus, I pray for my friends who are hurting around money today. Would you set us free? Would you give us hope? We show us steps out through generosity and learning how to use money the way you designed it. It's in your name we pray and everybody said, amen. Let's respond in song. Let's close in prayer like this. You should close your hands, put them out before you. It's just a posture of prayer. Lord Jesus, would you set us free from the ways that money has mastered us? Would you break our chains? And now open your hands. And Lord, set me free to love and follow you alone. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Friends, go in God's peace. We'll see you next week.